The nuclear industry likes to claim that living near a nuclear power reactor is perfectly safe, that there is no danger because the annual exposure rate to radiation is too small to count. But then you learn of a European-based compilation of studies that revealed the risks, especially to small children, of developing leukemia as a result of living close to a nuclear reactor. And the man who crunched the data tells you... With childhood leukemias, it's always led me to be more and more sure that uh, my initial premise was right. For that reason, I'm quite happy about sticking close to the evidence because that evidence really does show that there are increased leukemias near nuclear reactors. Well, when you hear something like that from an impeccable international expert like Dr. Ian Fairley, you know that you are sitting in a seat that all of us share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we take a close-up look at the work of Dr. Ian Fairley. He published an article in 2014 that correlated more than 60, 60 separate international studies about health risks to small children living within five kilometers, that's about three miles, of nuclear reactors. He not only reveals the results of that study, but explains why the greatest danger from nuclear reactors comes in a very short period of time and how the nuclear industry intentionally kept that information from the public. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than appeared this week in all mainstream media outlets combined. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 8, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Ohio, Attorney General Dave Yost has announced that his office is gathering evidence into possible election fraud tied to physically aggressive, quote, petition blockers hired by supporters of Ohio's nuclear bailout law. The petitioners are gathering signatures to put House Bill 6, the bill that led to the bailout of the nuclear industry in Ohio, on the November 2020 ballot. The bailout law, set to take effect on October 22nd, requires consumers to pay surcharges on their monthly electric bills, ranging from 85 cents at minimum for residential customers to 2400 for big industrial factories, beginning in 2021. This is to fuel a $170 million a year fund 
with the vast majority of that money going to rescue Ohio's two aging, decaying, and unprofitable nuclear power plants. Before the law's passage, First Energy Solutions, owners of the nuclear reactors, had said it would begin decommissioning its Davis-Bessey nuclear plant by May 31, 2020, and its Perry plant east of Cleveland a year later. That's because the plants have been unable to compete in this age of cheap and abundant natural gas. But a well-financed ad campaign by Generation Now, which is aligned with First Energy, has led to the reported harassment of people circulating the petitions against this bill. Ohio's Republican Attorney General said potential charges could be filed against someone found to have threatened or intimidated a person into not signing that petition. In California, Southern California Edison, the majority owners of the shuttered San Onofre nuclear reactors, has applied for permits to demolish the spent fuel pool from which nuclear waste is being transferred into containers for dry storage. The canisters are only five-eighths of an inch thick. Germany uses canisters that are close to 20 inches thick. Each one contains a Chernobyl's worth of radiation. There are 72 of them being loaded at San Onofre, and they will be held less than 110 feet away from mean high tide of the Pacific Ocean. The canisters have already been shown to be flawed or damaged, and we have new photos on that, which will be linked to on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 433. There are lots more problems with the canisters, and we will link to an episode that contains that information. These canisters, among other things, cannot be moved, which means that the spent fuel would be marooned indefinitely right next to the rising ocean. And without spent fuel pool infrastructure in place, there would be no place to put it. It would have to sit there until compromised. By the way, the canisters are only certified for 20 years, and the waste inside is radioactive for a half-life of 24,000 years. Do the math. In Japan... Tokyo Electric Power's Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Station, which experienced three massive meltdowns in 2011, is running out of room to store its radioactive water. TEPCO has announced that in all likelihood, it will be forced to dump large quantities of radioactive water into the ocean. But Fukushima fishermen have expressed deep concern for the future if the radioactive water is released. Tetsu Nozaki head of the prefecture's Federation of Fishing Cooperatives, told the UK Guardian, we strongly oppose any plans to discharge the water into the sea, citing the public's reluctance to eat fish caught off Fukushima. And the fishermen are not the only ones opposing this wrong-headed idea. Nearly four times as many Japanese citizens oppose the discharge of highly contaminated water than support it. A polling of 3,000 citizens in Fukushima and Niigata Prefecture, as well as wider Japan, showed that most expressed their support for storage of over 1 million tons of water rather than release it into the Pacific Ocean. According to a Greenpeace report from January 2019, the Japanese Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, or METI, in 2016 deliberately excluded the option to store and process the contaminated water to remove radioactive tritium. The myth promoted by the government and TEPCO ever since is that tritium removal is not possible. But the Greenpeace report also provides analysis 
that shows that over 800,000 tons of contaminated water contain additional radioactive isotopes, such as strontium-90, tens of thousands of times above regulatory limits. Japanese government intentions for discharge have been challenged by the South Korean government in recent weeks. Note that radioactivity in water cannot be quote-unquote diluted because that implies that it gets weaker the more diluted it becomes. But the smallest unit of impact on the human body by a radionuclide is a single atom. And when clean water is added to radioactive water, all it does is disperse the atoms. You may be exposed to a smaller amount, but it's just as deadly. An appeal has been filed with the Tokyo High Court challenging the acquittal of three former TEPCO executives over the 2011 Fukushima nuclear crisis. Prosecutors had sought five-year prison sentences for the former executives of TEPCO based on their indictment in 2016 for failing to implement known tsunami countermeasures that they had been told about. According to one of the court-appointed lawyers acting as prosecutors, letting this decision stand is clearly against justice. Taking into consideration the burden of the victims, it is incumbent on us to demand a judgment by a higher court. In Sweden, North Korea has broken off nuclear talks with the United States. These talks were the first such formal discussions since U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met in June and agreed to restart negotiations that had stalled after a failed summit in Vietnam in February. North Korea's chief negotiator cast the blame on what he portrayed as U.S. inflexibility, saying the other side's negotiators was not, quote, give up their old viewpoint and attitude. The U.S. State Department said Kim's comments did not reflect, quote, the content or spirit of more than eight and a half hours of talks, and Washington had accepted Sweden's invitation to return for more discussions with Pyongyang in two weeks. In Greenland, an abandoned U.S. military base buried deep under the Greenland ice has shifted hundreds of meters towards the edge of the ice cap since it was built at the height of the Cold War. The base, powered by the world's first mobile nuclear reactor, was officially a research station, but its real aim was to launch nuclear missiles against the Soviet Union in the event of war. The missiles were to be stored in a network of tunnels, but engineering problems, along with objections by Denmark about the real nature of the base, Denmark was the one in charge of Greenland at the time, prompted the U.S. military to shut it down in 1966. Confident that it would gradually be buried under the ice cap, but climate change has cast doubt on that theory because Greenland's ice is melting much faster than the historical average. And speaking of climate change, rising temperatures and rising seas are creating an ongoing menace to nuclear power. Unfortunately, in January, the NRC voted in a 3-2 to two decision to water down recommendations from its own staff to reevaluate seismic and flooding hazards at nuclear sites. Commissioner Jeff Barron wrote in his dissent, This decision is nonsensical. Instead of requiring nuclear power plants to be prepared for the actual flooding and earthquake hazards that could occur at their sites, NRC will allow them to be prepared only for the old, outdated hazards typically calculated decades ago when the science of seismology and hydrology 
were far less advanced than today. And now, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Fans of the HBO series Chernobyl are in for quite the treat. Starting now, visitors to the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which is a bad idea to begin with, will be allowed inside the control room at reactor number four, the very one that exploded on April 26, 1986, setting off events that would result in the world's biggest nuclear meltdown ever. Until Fukushima, but that's a topic open for debate. The State Agency of Ukraine on Exclusion Zone Management is opening up 21 new routes through the exclusion zone to tourists, and one of them is to the control room of reactor number four. This is where radiation levels are 40,000 times higher than acceptable levels. Idiots, guests, have to wear protective suits and face masks when in there. And even then, they will only be allowed in the control room for five minutes because, as they say, anything beyond that might prove seriously harmful. Yeah, think? But there's no stopping a bad idea once delusions of immortality have taken hold. Just this year alone, 85,000 tourists have visited Chernobyl. Several travel companies organize regular visits to the exclusion zone, a.k.a. tour guides to hell, because radiation levels are still lethal in certain areas of Chernobyl. But, as this little press release goes on to say, YOLO, you only live once, you know? Perhaps. But why intentionally shorten your stay as a life form? And that's why... Anyone who chooses to visit the control room at Chernobyl and those in power and authority who have decided to open it up to tourists, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. For those who would like to have a safer way of looking at Chernobyl, there is a site with more than 40 photographs of what Chernobyl looked like immediately afterwards and today. We will have that link up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 433. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, you know, every week I take a few moments out to encourage you to help out financially with Nuclear Hot Seat. I am not a natural-born salesperson, in case you couldn't tell. And at times it's excruciating to have to ask, but I do because it truly is the only way this show keeps going. I want to thank those of you who do donate, be it a one-time wish to help, or that small, loyal core of you who help on an ongoing basis with monthly recurring donations of as little as $5. Without your help, we wouldn't be here. And where else would you go to get this information? Nuclear Hot Seat is pledged to provide news stories on a wide range of nuclear topics with information that is verifiably sourced and fact-checked for accuracy. Plus, we provide eye-opening interviews with people who are genuine experts on the nuclear industry, even if they're not in the nuclear industry. And actually, it's better that way. But, you know, to keep the show going... We incur weekly, monthly, and annual costs, plus the occasional surprises. And that's where we need your help. 
A donation of any size will empower us to keep providing you with the nuclear news that you can count on. It's easy to do so. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's to send a one-time donation of any size. And if you want to support the show while sticking to your budget, we've got a big green Donate button, which allows you to set up a recurring donation of $5 a month. That's the price of a cup of coffee and maybe a tip to the barista here in the U.S. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat, the equivalent of a cup of coffee this month and every month. Know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful for your assistance and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Over the past weekend, I attended a three-day non-nuclear event. Yes, such things do exist. As a result, I know that I have a lot of new listeners. So here's a Cornerstone interview from 2014 with Dr. Ian Fairley. He is a UK-based Canadian consultant on radiation in the environment and a former member of the three-person secretariat to Britain's committee examining the radiation risks of internal emitters. Ian is a radiation biologist who has focused on the radiological hazards of nuclear fuel, and studied radioactive releases at nuclear facilities since before the Chernobyl accident in 1986. In 2014, the date of this interview, he published a scientific paper that blew the lid off the nuclear industry's claim that living near a reactor is perfectly safe. He also shows how the industry's standard operating procedures kept that information from the public until 2012. Please note, with my apologies, that at one point near the beginning of our talk, Skype became more Skypish than usual, and there's an echo on the line. I've edited it out as best I can, and if you bear with it through that brief bumpy zone, the problem eventually resolves. Trust that the information is well worth it. Ian Fairley, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start out with giving people an idea of your background. My main degree is in radiation biology. In other words, um, the effects of radiation on cells and tissues. Before that, I was a chemist at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. My postgraduate studies were in how best to deal with radioactive waste. And that was at Imperial College here in London. After that, I entered the civil service and uh, worked for the Department of Environment in the UK government for about 10 years, I suppose. And after that, I retired. But during my previous, uh, shall we say, life, before I started studying radiation biology, I actually worked for Greenpeace Canada as um, an advisor, a science advisor to them on their various campaigns. So... You could say I've had a fairly rounded sets of experience in, in terms of both an academic and a civil servant and also a Greenpeace campaigner. It seems that scientists like to consider themselves outside of politics, at least when they are putting forward the information that they do. Do you consider yourself anti-nuclear as a political stance? Yes. Basically what it is is that a long time ago I became fairly certain that the increased leukemias that we see in the neonuclear power stations 
came from their discharges, and I thought that it was unconscionable, just totally wrong for kiddie-winkers, little kids, to be dying from leukemia because of us generating electricity. There's lots of other ways of generating electricity. And I suppose fair to say that I'm, I'm not really very much in favor of nuclear power. But having said that, I'm also a scientist. And for scientists, the most important thing is to stick close to the evidence. In other words, if the evidence points in a certain direction, then check the evidence. Make sure it's the best evidence. And if that means you have to change your views, so be it. But with childhood leukemias, it's always led me to be more and more sure that uh, my initial premise was right. Um, so for that reason, I'm quite happy about being and sticking close to the evidence because that evidence really does show that there are increased leukemias near nuclear reactors. To be clear, you did not do a study on the childhood leukemias showing up around nuclear power plants, but you did compile existing studies and existing statistics. How extensive were those, and what led you to take this particular approach? Well, to actually carry out an epidemiological study takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and you have to have access to a lot of data. And oftentimes that data, data is proprietorial, and you can't get it yourself. You have to rely on other people getting it and giving it to you. On the other hand, there were over 60 studies worldwide on this particular issue of childhood leukemias near nuclear power plants. And that in itself provided uh, enough data for me to do my work properly. And 60 studies is a lot of studies, and there was a lot of data in those studies. And so that was by far the best thing to do, was to mine the existing data rather than actually carrying out a study from de novo, so to speak, using new data. Explain to us the extent of the danger that you discovered in doing this compilation of existing research. By the way, I should say that I, I collaborated in a lot of this with a, a German scientist called Dr. Alfred Kerblein, and he will crop up a lot of, in my work. What we found when we were doing this work together was, first of all, the large number of studies. I mean, 60 studies worldwide. In toxicology, this is probably one of the biggest areas that's ever been studied. For example, if you were to look at asbestos or chemicals or lead poisoning or anything like that, there's nowhere near 60 studies on health effects from particular plants. So this, this is a very large number. The second thing is that we could do what are called meta-analysis. In other words, what you do is you, by careful examination of the data, you can add the data together. You've got to be sure that you're adding oranges to oranges and not apples and oranges, but you can do it. And when we've done that, you can get meta-analysis. Other people have done the same, by the way, and they all come up with the same answer, and that is that there are increased leukemias near power stations. The thing is, it's beyond doubt. There's a very clear pattern of raised childhood leukemias near the power station. There was one aspect in the article that you did cite where you combined the statistics 
apparently mm-hmm. oranges to oranges, for Germany, Great Britain, Switzerland, and France into a single table. I was struck by the fact that what you came up with was 37% increase in childhood leukemias within five kilometers, which is about three miles from almost all nuclear power plants in these countries. That's right. Why had no one thought to compile these statistics before? And how alarming is this to you as a result that came from this? Well, the first thing is that the four governments, the scientists in those governments obviously knew that this was going on, and they obviously knew that each of the four countries were doing this. Um, It's an obvious step for the data and the four studies to be added together, and I'm absolutely positive that the scientists, the relevant scientists in the four countries did it. In fact, we know them, and we know they did it, but they didn't publish the data. We did, and Dr. Corbyn and I, we did it together. Very statistically significant uh, increases in childhood leukemias near all the reactors in those four countries. Not quite all the reactors. In France, there was only about uh, two-thirds of the reactors, but pretty well all of the reactors in the four countries. What conclusions can be drawn, or did you draw, from the compilation that you put together? Well, it was quite clear that there was an increase. It was beyond the bounds of chance. This wasn't a fluke finding. This meant that it was clear that there were increases near NPPs and that we had to move on to the reasons for that and the energy policy consideration. When did you start this? The actual study itself was commissioned by the organizers of a conference in the UK in 2012. And myself and many other contributors uh, to the conference, that all their proceedings, all the proceedings of the conference were going to be published in a journal. The problem was that my article or my talk was very controversial. It resulted in a lot of delay in the peer review process. And as a result of that, the, the proceedings of the conference delayed by about two years. I understand that there was one scientist who shall remain nameless who challenged you repeatedly and extensively. Would you talk about what that was like for you and also how you responded to the various challenges that you received? The person concerned that I have known for many years He's a, a worthy adversary, shall we say. I have a lot of respect for his work, Palina. Um, he's a good scientist, but we have different views about nuclear power. And it was a real tussle, shall we say. A long, drawn-out, gladiatorial battle. But it was on the basis of science, and we argued the toss about scientific evidence. And that took a long time. Many pages of paper and many, many points. The editor of the journal, he was very good. He had to be a neutral referee in this, but he, he was well informed. He knew about the issues and he knew what to allow, what not to allow. And so my congratulations go to him. A lot of other people would have ducked out on this and he saw it right through. And in the end, he published it. And his reward is that as a result of the publication, within about two or three months, um, about 500 people downloaded it, which 
in this, shall I say, uh, narrow subject area, is a lot of downloads. It's, um, it's gone viral or partly viral. A good chunk of the readership of the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity must have downloaded the, the article. And for the editor, that is very heartening because that means he struck a chord and people are picking up on what he's published. So he was very happy indeed. There is one other thing I should mention, and that is that I, I waited for about three months after the publication before I went onto the web and with my own blog on this. And that is to give time to readers to point out any errors or omissions or bits where I've got it wrong or whatever they be in the article. And to date, touch wood, there haven't been any at all. So that's given me a lot of confidence in the sense that even although I can imagine a lot of readers will be find this difficult to take, they haven't come up with anything which has sunk me below the waterline, so to speak. A shell hasn't landed below the waterline or anything like that. In fact, there haven't been any shells. So it's, uh, I'm quite pleased with that, and I'm relatively confident um, with the hypothesis now. It seems that the extensive challenges that you went through with your worthy scientific opponent helped you vet the article to the point where nobody could pick anything apart with it. How accurate would that be? <laughs> that would be very true. Yes, you're right. The fact that the, the peer review process was so tough basically meant that the article itself was pretty watertight. Now that we have this watertight article that correlates raised leukemia rates in children with proximity to nuclear power plants. What impact has what you've written had on public awareness in the media and on governmental policy? Well, it's really hard to say. Uh, what I do know is that amongst my colleagues and friends here in the UK and in Germany, they've more or less taken this on board and it's now accepted certainly in the environmental community, that this is a serious matter that has to be taken on board and that building nuclear power stations really is very problematic now. As far as governments are concerned, now they deny it all the way. It's very difficult for them that they've decided that they're going down the nuclear line to find this evidence which directly contradicts it. They reject the evidence, unfortunately. What do you think is going to happen here in the United States as more and more people become aware of this article and have the opportunity to read it? That's a good question. In the United States right now, the National Research Council is about to embark on a big study of childhood cancers near U.S. reactors. And this is going to be quite important. There's about 100 reactors in the United States, and if you get data for all those 100, that's going to be a fairly powerful study. Now, what this study that I've uh, produced says that in the rest of the world, the evidence is crystal clear. There are increased leukemias near nuclear plant. So I'm pretty sure that government scientists in the United States will have read the article. Indeed, Given that the fact that there's been so many downloads, and my the consultant that looks after my my website says oh, uh, a good chunk of those, like about half, are from the United States. That means 
that the scientists who can in the United States may know about the study for sure. So that, say, 200, 300 scientists in the United States have downloaded this and have read it, they must be aware uh, in government circles of this article, and it must figure somehow or other in their thinking. I'm not sure whether they will like the article in the sense that it's bad news for them, particularly in the Department of Energy in the United States, but nevertheless, the evidence is there. There is one other thing, and that is that the United States Environmental Protection Agency is consulting on proposals to relax the limits for radiation doses from U.S. nuclear power stations. This study flies right in the face of that. It says, if anything, it should be the other way around. It should be tightening, not relaxing radiation limits near U.S. reactors. So there's two things going on in the United States right now. Both of them are addressed by my article, and it's difficult for me to predict what's actually going to happen. I have a number of friends in the United States, quite a few in fact, and they have said to me that they are surprised and amazed at the findings in my study. They say that it has clear implications for what's going on in the United States. So my reaction would be, while the jury's still out, watch this space. Let's see what happens. To what extent do you think it would be possible for the U.S. to put together a study this massive and somehow come up with different results than what you came up with in examining 60 other studies? Well, the first thing is that if they do what we did, in other words, we restricted this to children under five, and also the exposure area to less than five kilometers, i.e. under three miles, it would be extremely surprising if they found out found anything different than we found. The reactors that we're talking about are the similar reactors to the United States, the uh, pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors. So it would be very difficult. One of the key things I'd like to mention to your uh, listeners is this. Up until 2012, we didn't really know what happened with emissions from nuclear reactors. The only data that we had was annual data. So many becquerels or petabecquerels or gigabecquerels per annum from a reactor. We didn't really know the time pattern. Now we do. Now we know that the large majority, say two-thirds, three-quarters, of the annual emissions from a reactor occur just once during one spike. And that spike occurs when the reactor is opened up to take out the old fuel and to put in fresh fuel. And during that time period, about a day, day and a half, the reactors are depressurized. In other words, the huge pressures inside the reactor are, well, they open up the valves and the radioactive gases shoot out. It's during that time that we think that the people downwind are exposed to high levels of radioactivity, i.e. high radiation doses. And that phenomenon, in other words, that time signature of instead of having 
even little bits of uh, emissions throughout the 365 days. Now, you don't have that. You have one big massive spike, which happens over about a day and a half period. And that happens, roughly speaking, about once a year, when the fuel rounds are taken out, the old ones, and uh, the new ones are put in. So that's important, very, very important, because it results in doses which are at least 20 times higher, and maybe even as much as 100 times higher. I discussed this in my article. So that, that's a major worry, and that's, that's something that's going to have to be addressed by both the US EPA and also the National Research Council in its future studies. They're going to have to address this big spike in emissions each year from every reactor. That's stunning because, of course, by averaging out over a year, it seems yes. like it would be a much lower thing. Dose. You wouldn't have to worry about it. It wouldn't be a dose that would be damaging, low level, blah, blah, blah. But what you're saying is that the majority of that happens at a predictable time when the fuel rods are being switched out and there is no notice, no awareness, no sirens going off, no protection, no awareness. Correct. Indeed, I've said to a number of nuclear operators, look, why don't you do this at nighttime when people are in bed? Mm -hmm. Why don't you do it when it's really, really windy out uh, and it's not raining? And the rain brings the radio clouds back to earth. When, but when it's windy, you get massive dispersion. But if it's very calm, then it just drifts everywhere and you get big doses. No response. Libby, there's one other thing I'd like, a little story I'd like to tell you, which might interest your readers. This time pattern, these spikes, have been hidden from us ever since the beginning of the nuclear power program back in the 19. 19- 50s, or late 50s, early 60s. Nobody knew about them, apart from the people who worked in the nuclear industry, and they kept really quiet about it. What happened was that some German scientists who were anti-nuclear began to suspect that there was something funny going on here. So, back in 2012, when the regional government of Baden-Württemberg became red-green, by red-green I mean it was governed by a coalition of socialist and green parties, rather than the, how shall I say, the, the Christian Democrats who are sort of more conservative in their views. The first thing they did was this, this German red-green coalition, um, was that they demanded their nuclear regulator give them data, give the minister, the energy minister, data on the half-hourly emissions from the nuclear power plants in their area in Baden-Württemberg. This is intriguing. The energy minister was a woman. I'm afraid I've forgotten her name. And I haven't got it written down, but she was a very powerful and determined lady. And the head of the region's uh, nuclear regulatory commission refused to give the information and said, no, we don't have it. But from the insider, we knew that they did have it. And so the German energy minister said, you will put this data on my desk on Monday morning, or you will be fired. And he said, I don't believe you. She said, right, I want on my desk on Friday afternoon, 
your resignation letter undated. And he had to bring his letter, resignation letter, undated, and she put it in the drawer and said, right, if I don't get this information on Monday morning, I am putting a date on this letter. That's what she did. And in other words, she was playing hardball. And we got the data. But the trouble is that the data was presented in a computer program form format that we, nobody had apart from the nuclear industry. So we demanded um, the data in a sort of user-friendly form, and they said, no, you asked for the data, you got it. We're not helping you anymore. And she was about to sack the regulator when some people in the Green Party who were computer wizards said, look, we can put this, this data into a computer program, shall we call it A, and then transfer that to a computer program B, and then transfer it to Microsoft Excel. And once we get it into Excel, we can read off the data. It took them about three days to do it, but they got it. (laughs) I love it. And we got the data, and for the first time we saw what was happening, a massive spike, a thousand times higher in terms of concentration than the normal amount. In other words, instead of three becquerels per cubic meter, we're finding 3,000 becquerels per cubic meter. In other words, a thousand-fold increase. And then we knew what was going on. And then we knew, because they had tried, they had hit this since the start of the nuclear power program. Well, that's like 50 years ago. They've hidden this. And it went to great lengths to prevent us from getting the information. And now we've got it. Now, what I'd like to say to your American listeners is, this is very important. You have to go to your regulators and say, there's no reason why this is not occurring also in UK and US reactors. These data are from pressurized water reactors, like in Dremigen, in Baden-Württemberg, in Germany, and so we know that it's very, very likely the same is happening with U.S. reactors. So what are you going to do about it? That's the wake-up call that I'd like to issue to your uh, listeners, and I hope that uh, at least some of you, some of your listeners, will pick this up and say, whoa, we've got to do something here. It's a powerful piece of information. And yeah. the fact that... They knew that the industry knew about these spikes and went to such great lengths to hide it means that they understood exactly how devastating that information would be to their business and their financial futures. So, of course, they would do everything in their power to hide it. And good for those people in Germany and that environmental minister and you – for getting this information, putting it in a usable form so that we have the opportunity to now use this as a very important piece of weaponry, as it were, on behalf of getting these things shut down and taken care of. So if someone hears this interview or reads your article and realizes that they are living in proximity to a nuclear reactor, and they either have or they want to have children, what would you recommend that they do? I've already done this in Canada, in fact, where they've got uh, nuclear reactors, you wouldn't believe, in uh, metropolitan Toronto. It's absolutely crazy. I'm Canadian, so I don't have any joy in saying 
what I say, but the Ontario government really has got to get a grip of this. And I have said in guidance to Greenpeace Canada that women of childbearing age who wish uh, or intend to have families, or even if they've got young ones, or if they're already pregnant, they shouldn't live within 10 kilometers of a reactor. And that people who already live near nuclear reactors and have gardens, they shouldn't eat their own produce if they live within five kilometers. And I've actually given that evidence, and it's published on my website in Evidence to Greenpeace Canada. So my advice to this would be to young women who are living in the shadow of nuclear reactors is don't do it. Ian, if people wish to download a complete copy of your article, how could they do that? Difficult. It's behind a very stiff paywall. Um, my guidance to people who need a full copy for research purposes would be to contact me, and it's permissible under the copyright laws to send individual copies to scientific researchers. You can do that. What is not permissible is for somebody to get a copy, then immediately uh, send it around to hundreds of other people. That is not allowed, I'm afraid, under our present copyright arrangements. Um, for those people who are not scientific researchers, my guidance to them would be, do they know anybody who works as a scientist in a, an academic institution, a university in the United States? Or do they live near a big national library, either in Washington, D.C., or New York, or L.A., or near the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, or the Berkeley Laboratories, or any of the national research institutes? Because they will have copies of these journals, and they will have a copy of the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity online. Uh, so if they have any friends in universities at all, they will be able to, to, to get them ask them to download for them. It's not ideal. The present paywall arrangements are unfortunate. Um, but it's how the large publishing companies make their living. So that's my best guidance. Ian, anything you would like to add at this point that we haven't covered? I haven't mentioned the name of the organization in Germany which got the data of the emission spikes. It's called IPPNW, and that stands for International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW. They're a, a, a large international organization based, their headquarters are in Boston, in, in Massachusetts. They're a good organization. My hats go off to IPPNW because they were the people that got the data. And IPPNW also provided me with Dr. Alex Rosen, who yes. in Nuclear Hot Seat number 161, I had the opportunity yes. to interview him about the UNSCIR report, 
which yeah. he took apart point by point. It has gone viral. It has been picked up by e News and elsewhere and has become one of the most important interviews that I have done. This one ranks up there as well because right. what you're providing us is with the hardcore scientific evidence that we can use to say we're not a bunch of emotional tree-hugging environmentalists. <laughs> Though we may be in our spare time, but we also have the data to back up what it Absolutely. is that we are saying. My study provides a lot of ammunition. It really does. And try and get a hold of it. And uh, if there are people who desperately who really do need to have this, for example, they have children who live very close to a nuclear reactor, I will send them the, the article, I will, so that they can use it to obtain some sort of redress. I have given evidence in Canada to various public hearings, uh, governmental inquiries and stuff like that. And I'm quite prepared to do that in the United States. Here I am, ready, willing and able to help out in any way that I can from the forthcoming, there's two struggles now. One is the National Research Council study and secondly is the US EPA proposals to weaken uh, the safety limits. Ian, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. It's a pleasure from mine, and uh, best wishes to all the uh, campaigners uh, who are opposing the nuclear juggernaut, as you say, in the United States. And I'd like to say to you, too, uh, well done, and uh, I hope that uh, we can certainly keep in touch. Dr. Ian Fairley. You can find a link to his article on the study of childhood leukemia rates in proximity to nuclear reactors on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 433. You can also follow him on his blog at infairly.org, and that's F as in Frank, A-I-R-L-I-E. Just click on the News and Comments tab. And we'll also have a link to the listings of boiling water reactors around the world so you can see if you live near one or more than one. Activist shout-outs! Congratulations to Jose Herrera Plaza, the director of the documentary Broken Arrow, Nuclear Accident in Palomares. Plaza received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Uranium Film Festival being held in Portugal this year, 2019, on his investigative efforts and long-term dedication to exposing the dramatic nuclear accident at Palomares in Spain. It was the crash of a U.S. military aircraft carrying four nuclear bombs on board. It happened in 1966. Plaza was honored for his commitment to ensure that this accident which caused a permanent contamination of parts of Palomares with radioactive plutonium, will not be forgotten. And we'll provide a link to an article from Fairwinds Energy Education and Maggie Gunderson about whistleblowing, something she and her husband, Arnie Gunderson, who is chief engineer at Fairwinds and has more than 45 years of nuclear power engineering experience, have dealt with firsthand. It's a powerful article, that builds upon my interview with Arnie about what his whistleblowing on nuclear safety did to his life. That's in Nuclear Hot Seat number 417 from June 18, 2019, and we will link to that episode as well. Here's today's final thought. The callousness of the nuclear industry seems to have no limits. As you heard in today's interview, 
reactor operators had to be forced to provide statistics on radiation releases and only did so under great duress and still tried to block our understanding by providing the data in a program that they were convinced couldn't be accessed. You might ask, what do they have to hide? And it took the work of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and a very testy government official in Germany to find out. Every nuclear reactor has to be refueled approximately once a year. This is when the greatest radiation spike happens, the greatest danger of exposure exists. You would think that conscientious reactor operators would at least put out a notice so people could stay indoors, use air filters, or otherwise avoid the area while this operation takes place. But the nuclear industry being the nuclear industry, they don't. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission doesn't make them. And then they disguise this massive short-term exposure by averaging it out over a full year so the numbers look really small. And thus we have decades of exposure to high levels of radiation eroding the health of our children. Don't take my word for it. It's documented, and we've got the link. Most nuclear reactors currently in operation are over 40 years old. And you may not know it, but nuclear reactors were only designed to be used for 40 years before needing to be shut down and decommissioned. That's because of what's called embrittlement, the breakdown of the metal in the reactor containment vessel because it's being constantly bombarded with radioactive particles. Most nuclear reactors currently in operation are over 40 years old or close to it. So by original design, they should all be shutting down just about now. But the completely captured Nuclear Regulatory Commission has never met a license renewal application that it didn't like and has repeatedly granted 20-year extensions to nukes. Even as the industry has started embedding talking points to have us consider life after 60, meaning an additional 20-year extension on the license after this first 20-year extension. 80 years of operation for a deadly technology that was only supposed to run for 40 years? This is madness. And the older a reactor gets, the more dangerous it gets, the more likely to develop cracks, operational problems, glitches, and radiation releases into the community beyond those that happen during refueling. Consider it this way. How reliable would you consider a 40-year-old car that's been in constant heavy use? How about a 60-year-old car? Would you trust it to run full out, cross-country, without blowing a gasket or an engine? At least with the car, if that happened, all you would have as a result is a big repair bill. But with a nuclear reactor, you could, and according to this report, very likely would, end up with desperately ill children. No need for electricity is worth the poisoning of our kids. That's not a quid pro quo. It doesn't equal out. And this danger, as you heard, is not a supposition. It's fact. It's proven. The data exists in 60 studies from multiple countries. To take off from a slogan out of the 1960s, nuclear reactors are not healthy for children and other living things. 
the right time to shut down this technology and replace it with genuine renewables like solar and wind was 40 years ago. The next right time is right now. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 8, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Toledo Blade, Samuel Lawrence Foundation, Colorado Sun, The Guardian, Greenpeace Japan, Bloomberg.com, Counterpunch.org, JapanTimes.co.jp, 60 Minutes Australia, Reuters, Power-ENG.com, The BBC, EnTraveler.in, CBSNews.com, German-Times.com, Fairwinds Energy Education, and as always, the completely captured and neutered Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where I really want to put regulatory in quotes. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe. Or if you prefer, you can have Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week. Just go to the website nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down for the big yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and email address. We promise we won't bug you. But you will get an email once a week with a link to the week's new episode. Come join listeners around the world, 123 countries and counting, as well as people who hear this program broadcast in their local communities. Now here's how you can help us as well. Nuclear Hot Seat is dependent upon people on the front lines, on the ground in nuclear battles around the world, to keep us up to date on what's happening so that we can then convey the truth to others. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, and you're really frustrated because I haven't done it yet, you got to give me a fighting chance by letting me know. So send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. As always, we are grateful for your support. Nuclear Hot Seat, this episode, is copyright 2019, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. Just tell people where it came from and you can use the information. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date when it's over, because once it starts, because of the radiation released, it is never over. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.